Thank you for tuning in to the First Gen Hunter Podcast, the go-to resource for those seeking to establish a foundation in hunting knowledge, skills, and tactics. Hey, you're back. Is it already Thursday? Sure is. The day before Friday, just about ready to kick off the weekend. I hope you got some plans to get out and maybe do a little turkey hunting. Maybe do a little morel hunting, which is the topic for this one. Or maybe you'll hit the elusive royal flush. What is a royal flush? Well, I wouldn't have even been able to tell you what a royal flush really was. I'm not much of a card player. I know the term, though. And uh, we invented it. It's a new thing. And um, I'm already talking to Alex about maybe coming up with a uh, East to West and First Gen uh, collaboration on making a Royal Flush t-shirt. But we're going we're gonna to learn what that term now means. We coined it. It's a, it's a, it's a hunting or an outdoorsman phrase that uh, we coined in this episode. So just keep your ears tuned when we start talking about the Royal Flush. But anyways, tonight is an excellent episode. It is one of my most favorite people in the world that we're interviewing, Mr. Garrett Gary. I got to stop with this Garrett nonsense. Mr. Gary Fike, or as we like to call him, Fike, uh, is our guest tonight. And uh, Fike is somebody that has played a major role in me becoming an outdoorsman and then even translating that over to eventually hunting of course i did do a lot of outdoor activity and stuff growing up but um i kind of fell away from it for a little bit and uh fike was a big reason i got back into it so i'm eternally grateful for that and uh he also was a a big influence on my youngest brother jake getting him in the outdoors but i will take credit for this i actually got jake hunting so yeah but fike was super important not to diminish that <laughs> but anyway so we got fike on this one uh alex joined me alex from uh east to west hunts that is a f- very familiar voice on the show he joined me for this one always a good time with him brandon was uh pretty uh tied up with his schedule so he couldn't jump on which is is uh, no problem there alex did a phenomenal job as always co-hosting this one we talk a little bit about uh this crazy buffalo lethal removal plan which is pretty much hunting but anyways uh we'll talk about that with him and uh he'll put his two cents in on morale hunting a little bit too so it's a good one it's a fun one and uh we're trying something new with this one too for the tip of the day i brought in another guy another familiar voice episode 32 mr alex Earhart. so you'll get to hear from him here in just a minute but this is a fun episode hope you guys enjoy it like i said hope you get outside this weekend and have a little bit of fun Take it easy, people, and listen on. All right, everybody, you are in luck. Today's tip of the day is coming from a previous guest and one of the best morel mushroom hunters I know out there. In fact, I have benefited from this guy's skills in the mushroom woods. Uh, he's given me on several occasions a nice little uh, pile of morels since uh, I struggle so much to find them myself. <laughs> and that is Mr. Alex Earhart. Alex was on episode 32. He is uh, one of the best outdoorsmen I know. 
hiking, hunting, uh, does a lot of fishing with his dad. And, uh, he's here to tell us about not just morel hunting, but instead how to preserve these morels, which has been a real challenge for people. If they find a whole bunch of them and they, they aren't able to, you know, get through them all eating them with their friends or family in time before they start to go bad. Alex has uh, kind of figured out a method for preserving these mushrooms. So Alex, could you uh, give us a rundown on that? Sure can. And I I'm, honestly can't take credit for it. Uh, my dad taught me and he actually uh, was taught by a neighbor that actually has passed away now, but he was a huge, I can't even begin to say how big of an outdoorsman he was. Um, if it didn't, if it walked, crawled or whatever, he ate it and, uh, he'd grow anything he could grow. He would eat and, uh, he lived off the land pretty much, but he showed us this way. And, uh, we used to just freeze them in like, uh, a gallon of an old milk, uh, gallon of milk, uh, container cut, cut off the top, throw them in there after cleaning them off and, uh, just freeze them in water in there and then just put them in the freezer and getting them out, thaw them out, but they were always so soggy. And, uh, when they, they're not the firm mushrooms, like when they're nice and fresh. So this guy showed us and, or taught us basically, uh, when you get them home, whatever you don't want to eat or do fresh, um, if you want to store them, uh, cut them in half, uh, lengthwise, cut them in half. And, uh, so you have two sides basically and, uh, soak them. And I say we soak them overnight. Um, some people put salt in the water, just if there's anything in there. Um, I think I do that occasionally. Um, doesn't have to be. And, uh, you can throw them in the fridge and, uh, soak them overnight. And then the next day, bring them out, or you can just do it for three or four hours, but soak them, give them a good soak for a while. And then, uh, bring them out and, uh, whatever you want to use for whatever you normally bread your mushrooms with, uh, use that and bread the mushrooms like you would normal. And at that point, obviously you want to dry them off a little bit before you bread them. Um, but that's that anybody that eats mushrooms will know what they, how they prefer to do it and this and that. So whatever you want to use for breading, uh, do that. I use a little bit of flour, some cracker crumbs, saltine crumbs, and then some maybe, uh, fry magic, whatever different thing you want to use, but that's everybody's own preference. And then, um, batter them up pretty good and, uh, use a little egg to make it sticky and keep them on there. And, uh, so I use, I put them in the egg and then into the batter and then put the halves on a cookie sheet and try to clean it off as much as possible and just have the batter on the mushrooms and put them on a cookie sheet. And as you fill up the cookie sheets, put them in the freezer and make sure they're not touching each other and that will freeze them. Do it until they're nice. They're, they're hard. And then at that point you can put them together and throw them in a bag. Uh, they're not going to stick together at that point then. So I, I do that as well with like strawberries, uh, any berries that I, I'm going to freeze. I usually dry them off. Then I put them on cookie sheet, put them in the freezer. So then they freeze and then they don't get all stuck to each other and everything as much. It, it can still happen, but it's not as bad then. Then just uh, throw them in the bag and freeze away. Um, I don't like to, you know, freeze past the next growing season. Um, so try to eat up as soon as you can, but once you get them out, I, we recommend not, we at first thought them out and we we're like, yeah, they're still a little soggy. The neighbor recommended, Hey, I forgot to tell you, just throw them from when they're frozen. Don't even thaw them out, get the oil ready, throw them in that way. And they actually come out pretty decently firm then. So just 
you know, nothing major, uh, but small little things. Uh, when we would freeze them whole in the gallon, they'd come out. We'd have to try to bread them at that point then. And the biggest thing was breading them beforehand. We'd never thought about that. And it's pro- it may be one of those common sense things to some people. We didn't do it that way. And it was just what we were taught uh, growing up and my dad growing and so forth. So this guy, you just learn a little, you know, different trick here and there and that's all it was was basically breading it cutting them in half like you would uh like you cook them up and uh breading beforehand and then doing that little freezer trick he he actually taught that to me for the berries as well so can't take credit for that uh again but uh that was basically it and then just throw them in a bag and then um do it right from the freezer into the oil and and or however you're gonna cook them you know so and they come out good so uh, it's, I've now done it that way. And to be honest, when I, when I was, I had found a bunch, uh, last year was a bad season for me, but the season before I had just had so much and I was on my, I was by myself. So it was me, my, me, myself and I, you know, preparing them, doing this, getting them ready for the freezer. And it's a lot, it's a lot of work cutting and breading and just doing it all. And your arms get tired and, this and that so i would get to a point where i'm like well i think these last ones i don't need to bread them i'll just just throw them on the cookie sheet you know throw them in the bag and then i'll bread them beforehand before we cook them like we used to do and there was a noticeable difference um they're a little bit soggier the breading wasn't it there was a difference so uh i when we bread them beforehand freeze them like that man really good hmm there you have it, folks. That's an excellent tip. One of those tips that gives you something to look forward to when you hit those dark days of winter and you're far away from from morel season. You can uh, crack open your bag of perfectly preserved morels and uh, get a little taste of spring. All right, Alex, thank you yep. very much for uh, offering that up for us tonight. No problem at all. Take care. Happy hunting. Alex, can you believe we are here recording episode 53 already? I mean, technically, I began this project right about this time a year ago. Um, It was, you know, during the earlier days. I mean, we'd been a few weeks in. I'd I'd gotten a few phone calls from uh, the school district and seen the the governor of Illinois say that uh, school's not going to be returning anytime soon, a few times at this point. And so it's kind of like, you know, I got a little bit of extra time on now's the time to launch this thing. And it's been a year. Not hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Time's definitely been flying. I even, I even think back to my first episode here and, and CN 53 is kind of wild. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. I'm trying to think when was your first episode? Was that like 16 maybe, uh, or 18? I think it might've been 18. I think you were on, I think you were on after the first fly true episode, which was like really interesting timing because they were basically talking like what one of your client, your clients would be saying, you know, yep, these guys yep, getting ready to head, to head West. <laughs> and then we, then we talked to you that that was kind of a cool little, little shift around there. But uh, yeah, you know, the podcast though itself, I think Brandon and I started recording sometime in late May or yeah, maybe even late might've, might've been early May, 
Yeah, maybe early May is when we started recording, but we didn't launch any until uh, June. And I was actually planning to hold out till I had 10 episodes ready to go and I was going to drop all 10 at once. And then I got interviewed by uh, Mr. Dan Johnson, uh, who's with uh, the Iowa Sportsman Magazine podcast. And he, of course, is a, uh, you know, big time hunting podcaster. He had all the wealth of knowledge. I had no knowledge on it. And uh, I asked him, about my plan. He's like, dude, you need to launch it right now. <laughs> Stop messing around. <laughs> and so I had this like kind of unexpected launch date of the podcast. And so that's actually coming up in, in June, but now here we are year deep episode 53. And uh, another cool thing is we got another early days of the first gen hunter podcast guest on with us. And that is Mr. Garrett Fike. And that's the last time I'm going to use the name Garrett, I think. So Fike, <laughs> how are you, buddy? I'm doing well. It's going to be back on the podcast with you guys. Yeah, for sure. You know, uh, when, when we were texting here, right. The, the few minutes leading up to this, um, I was sensing that, that Fike and, uh, Alex were getting kind of ready to go here. There and it's like, well, do we really need to, uh, do we really need to wait around any longer? And, yeah, uh, so, yeah. So <laughs> I, I sent a text and Fike's like, hang on a minute. I'm putting my bow away. So, uh, Fike, you've been out there with the old, uh, stick bow, huh? Yeah. I had two of them out there with me tonight. I, I've, I've got two, uh, relatively new purchases. One's a Bob Lee and the other one is a stalker stick bow. So I was out kind of playing around with both of them. And, uh, been working on getting arrows tuned for each one just in time for 3d season. We'll be out hitting the course here before too long. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, uh, Fike actually, uh, got my brother Jake into shooting traditional archery and man, Jake has really taken off with it. He's, I think he practices almost every single day or at least several times a week. And, um, he's just he's just really into it. So he's kind of gotten bit by that bug, but I think that's kind of fitting because Fike, as I've said before, has played a major role in uh, both myself and my brother, Jake, getting into hunting. He was kind of one of our earliest big influences for hunting. So it makes a lot of sense that you influenced Jake in that way, but um, it's really cool that you're, you're doing it. And you've already, I think it was with your bow, wasn't it? You uh, took a Turkey this last weekend. No, that was actually with shotgun. Oh, okay. But, uh, I have I have uh, bow killed turkeys before, um, but that wasn't one of them. Okay, and you have another tag for this weekend, so you're going back out, right? That's right. Uh, how it works in Illinois is you get uh, approximately one week to hunt on a, on a tag. So this last weekend was a, a fourth season hunt. It's still fourth season here. Um, today was actually the last day. Tomorrow is going to start fifth season, and I'll be hunting in. Warren County last weekend was McDonough. So I like to kind of bounce around and hunt a few different counties sure. each spring. Nice. Uh, now I don't want to turn this into a Turkey episode here, but I do have a question <laughs> for you. When it gets to this part of the Turkey season, Fike, is it, is it just a totally different ball game than what it would have been first season? Like are the birds a lot harder to, to locate and stuff? You know, I actually, find it the opposite i i have some of mm-hmm. my best luck late season so that's why like mm. this year i pulled i got a third season fourth season and fifth season tag and uh, i opt out of those first couple weeks and it seems like 
the first week or two, a lot of the birds are, are still really grouped up. And later on into the spring, they start to disperse. So that opens up more options for me instead of having maybe one farm with, with a, you know, a good number of turkeys on it. I might have three or four farms with, you know, a handful on each, on each piece. And, uh, seems like the hens break off, you know, right now they're laying eggs and, uh, they're spending some time, you know, doing that. So they split off from the toms a little bit earlier in the morning. And so they're, they can be pretty receptive, uh, during that mid morning time frame, And, and that's what actually happened on the bird I killed this past weekend. It was about around a quarter after 11 when I, when I finally caught up with him on Sunday. Oh, so that's... getting fairly late. Yeah. Yeah. So that gives me a lot of hope because I'm supposed to go turkey hunting here real soon. And, uh, as you guys know, I am totally new to turkey hunting. I went out just for a little bit last year. I kind of carved in some time to go just so I could say I'd been pretty much and get that, get that initial experience under my belt. But I'm planning to hit it pretty hard coming up here soon. And, uh, we'll see we'll see what the end result is. I feel like I've talked to enough experts this spring on, uh, <laughs> on the podcast, you know, Heath Rayfield, that guy, if, if you, if you're listening to this and, uh, I th- I'm pretty sure Alex, you follow him on social media, Fike, I would really, oh, yeah. re- really strongly recommend that, that you follow him. Okay. That guy, he's, so he's a hunting guy down in South and North Carolina. And, uh, just a turkey nut. I mean, the guy's a a cold blooded deer slayer too, but, but, uh, I bet he has seen probably 30 plus turkeys die this spring. If I had to guess, I mean, between he just got done doing a big trip and, uh, just taking all these clients out. I mean, it is just insane, but, but we interviewed him. And so I'm feeling pretty confident. Then we interviewed Jesse Jeffley, who just, uh, also shot, uh, a Turkey, um, just this last weekend, he shot one with, uh, his, uh, homemade, um, traditional bow and, and arrows. So, uh, it's pretty cool to see that, but, um, I feel like, you know, just getting enough of this advice in there, I might actually have a chance, but, uh, Fike and Heath and Jesse are not the only one to tag a tur- Turkey. Our good buddy here, Mr. Alex Gruen from East to West hunts. You got a Turkey in the bag already this spring. What went on with that? Yeah, I was, uh, I don't, I don't think my hunt lasted more than like five hours. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was up in the, in the thumb here in Michigan and I was, uh, gosh, I think I've been prepping now for a few months, just kind of scouting out properties and whatnot. And, um, yeah, I had to get, I had to get a little bit, I would say unique in my approach because I couldn't get on any farms. So I ended up having to find who was leasing out all these farms that I was finding turkeys on, (laughs) uh, and come, come to find out it is one outfitter in this massive area that has like 20,000 acres. So I had to basically, uh, rent out some property from him for two days to, uh, get access to where I needed because it's all private property there. Sure. And uh, yeah, had a great hunt, but I literally, I mean, I went out in the morning, uh, kind of, kind of to, uh, Fike's point, you know, I, I kind of find the early season a little bit tougher almost than in the next couple weeks. I, I find they're a little bit more active. So the, a lot of the birds were very, very leery, wouldn't come in. And I just, I just found, 
you know, five birds in one area, I, I was running and gunning. So I was hopping and calling and moving. And I literally sat in some vines on the side of a, um, like it was like, it was a prior cornfield. And I literally put a decoy out and made one little chirp and I had five birds just running to me. So, <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. That was, that was priceless. Yeah. So I, I saw hen, hen flew out real fast straight towards the decoy and the, I had, there were, there were three times in the group. The first one that came by, I, I didn't even have an opportunity to even take a look at him. Cause he was like four feet in front of me. So, man, that's and I, cool. I use a shotgun too. So, <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's effective, but you know, somebody was, maybe it was, uh, I think it was Jesse, Jesse Jeffley's talking about making some of those guillotine arrows for, uh, for his bow and man, I've seen somebody like on TV use those before and talk about devastating those things. Oh yeah. I mean, it is, it's like execution, man. They just slice the head right off and decapitate those turkeys. So, I mean, I think if you, if you have the right application, I think a a bow can be uh, probably even a little more lethal than a shotgun, but no shame there. I'll be using a shotgun for sure. I, uh, (laughs) as we know, I'm still trying to get a deer with a bow, let alone a turkey. So I better, (laughs) I better, uh, I better wait on, on that level of difficulty here for a while, but you know, another, uh, another cool thing kind of going on right now. And, uh, you know, I like to follow all sorts of stuff in the hunting world. You get like, uh, these little articles that pop up on social media or, you know, I have a terrible habit of, um, reading headlines and on my iPhone, like in, uh, Apple news or whatever. And of course they're sourced from all sorts of, all sorts of, uh, totally unbiased, totally, you know, fair and balanced, right. Uh, uh, news <laughs> sources out there. But I figure if I read enough, you know, from like every, every, uh, major media outlet out there, I'll, I'll somehow like be able to piece the truth together on things. <laughs> but, but, uh, I'm a sucker whenever something comes up that's like conservation related or hunting related. And, uh, one issue that came up and I instantly thought of you and I meant to text you as soon as I saw it, but I can't remember. I got distracted by something. You know, I got, I got two little kids running around here and, and, uh, there's, there's plenty to, uh, occupy my mind, but, uh, there is a, and it's not even really called a hunt, but there's this Buffalo, um, this Buffalo, I guess, sharpshooting event, you might call it, um, lethal management, I think is kind of the term they use the national park service uses. And there they look, they are walking some fine lines here to make this happen. But basically there's a significant overpopulation of bison in, I think it's the North rim of the grand Canyon area. And these, these bison are starting to destroy some aspects of the park they're uh um you know basically way over what the population goals were and uh they're allowing the public to apply not for a tag but they're allowing them to to apply to be chosen to essentially operate in my understanding here and i'm hoping alex can give us some more guidance but operate as a sharpshooter for uh the National Park Service. You, you, are you familiar with this too, Alex? Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's it's pretty spot on. You know, it is it is a fine line. I think the Park Service really wants it to be known as it's a removal program. 
you're at 100 percent of volunteers yeah that's the, that's the term lethal removal that's the term yeah yeah so so essentially you're you're volunteering your time and you have to be there for for five full days so this isn't mm. like a go in there and, and you know shoot something and then you're gone the next day like you're basically committing to five days there mm-hmm. and you do get to keep the meat but you are basically a volunteer to take out whatever bison they want you to take out so you know i i think the part with it being a hunt well there's no tag associated you're not paying anybody but the cool thing is you know in other states there's there's this fine line on tax dollars being spent for sharpshooters where like i mean california is a perfect example right they stop mountain lion hunting but what do they do? Then they go and hire sharpshooters and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in tax revenue to go hire these guys to shoot out mountain lions because they're killing dogs and cats in their backyards. Uh, this is not that. Right. They're not hiring <laughs> sharpshooters. They're basically saying, hey, volunteer your time. You can get to take up some great meat. You get to keep the skull. You get to keep the, the hide. And and obviously you get some, some fresh food. But you got to commit this time to us, mm-hmm. and it's and it's only twelve people being selected. So I think it's, I think you have to you had to do your application yesterday or today, which is May third, May fourth. So obviously that's that's already in the bag. Right. But the the premise was I think twenty five people will be picked, and then out of those twenty five, they're going to have like the best twelve chosen based off of their credentials, and then you do have to pass a shooting test as well. And then they will take you to where you need to be. But they they also heavily emphasize you have to be in really, really, really good shape because you're going to be <laughs> hauling a ton of meat. Yep. And you are going to be, I think it's over 8,000 feet in elevation. So obviously, oh, wow. if you're a flatlander, you're going to be hurting a little bit. Yeah. So, and, and you know, the, the one question I was trying to read to try to find all this, the one question that I, I haven't figured out yet and I was going to make a call just kind of based on everybody's interest here, but I'm pretty sure you do get to have help on taking the meat out. And I think there's some teamwork effect on here, but you cannot have any kind of motorized vehicle access. So you are hooping the meat yeah. in and out of the park. Yeah. I, I remember just doing my brief bit of reading on it. They said it was, I mean, you got to get this out of here on foot, but I also kind of started to gather as I was reading this and you know, this is part of them emphasizing this is not a hunt. This is not a hunt, you know, that I, and, and the part where you mentioned you got to be there for five days. I kind of got the vibe that like of whoever is there for those five days, you know, whether it's three guys or, you know, two guys or whatever, everyone's kind of like working as a team on breaking these down, getting them out. Right. And so it's kind of cool in that sense that there would be, um, you know, kind of this teamwork aspect to it. But, and as Alex said, you know, unfortunately I didn't find out about this until too late and I would have loved to have gotten it on here and maybe some of our listeners could have applied and maybe somebody got chosen, but it, it, they're calling it a pilot program. And so I'm kind of hoping that this is something that, you know, as you said, it might've even been the first time we had you on the show, Alex, uh, the deal going on over in the, you know, Grand Tetons National Park, right? Where yep. where they're doing this tag selling bison removal, you know, so truly a hunt. You're you're outfitting yourself and you're you're uh going and, and getting into the back country and trying to get a buffalo. But um it's been, if I remember correctly, 
very low success rates, right? Yeah, super low success rates because what's happening is the the bison are not coming out. It's it's such a weather dependent hunt, and they're basically coming into a national elk refuge to feed. But you really <laughs> need to get you need to get piled on with snow in order to happen. So if it's a late snow, and I mean you could have drawn this fantastic once in a lifetime tag but if you have no snow and it's 60 degrees out those bison are not coming into their refuge and you're not going to be successful so especially if you're seeing some of the younger uh bison and and the females coming in and then the bulls are are staying back they're kind of the last ones to kind of come in a lot of times so it, it has not seen good success rates that's for sure hmm yeah. So, you know, you, you never know. <laughs> it it could be something that leads to maybe another opportunity down the road. And, you know, if you're listening to this and if you are a new hunter, you know, now you got something to get you back in the gym for, you know, we might have another opportunity like this. And, uh, one of the, one of the cool things, uh, about it is that, uh, the, since there's no tag associated with it, it's basically a, like a $65 fee, I think you were saying, right? Just the 65 bucks. I mean, you got to pay to get there, obviously, and stuff. But what do you remember off the top of your head what the tag price was for the Teton hunt? Uh, you know what? I don't know off the top of my head. I want to say it well, was like in the thousands, wasn't it? For Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, you got to account for your... I, I, I have it all written down here. I can give you the specifics. But, you know, you, you have to apply for it. You have to get the tag. You have to pay the credit card fees. I mean, there's there's a lot of hoops that you got to jump into. And on top of it, you have the, um, you know, you, obviously your odds are just horrendous in the first place, mm. right? So I, I think that's the biggest stumbling block for everybody is the, uh, it's the odds of the application game. And then for me, you know, what I'm always advising anybody is, okay, that's great. You're going to put in for, you're going to put in for this, but if you're paying the application fees and then on top of it, you're paying the processing fees for hmm. the, uh, for the credit card, you, you know, you're, you're front loading, uh, quite a bit of change. Yeah. So like, like I I give you right kind of ballpark. I'm just trying to think the dollars of the, of the fees, but if you include the upfront fees, it, you're dropping about 4,500 bucks for that tag. And you're never going to see back, you know, about 125 of that minimum. If you're doing a cow or a calf part of the hunt, you're still out. I think it's $2,800, 20, wow. 20, 28 <laughs> and some change. And, and there, there you go again, another 80, 90 bucks, you know? So it's, it's just kind of like this opportunity in Arizona is fantastic. If it happens where this is going to be kind of a, a pilot that works, I could foresee that that herd being kind of they're going to go after that same whole premise because they need to thin that herd out the same way because it's it, they're getting destructive because they eat so much and then they're going to die anyways because there's just not enough food for them so you, right. you're, you're better off relocating some of them and then you know obviously there's costs with relocating them moving them so on and so forth so some of them you're going to thin the herd i wouldn't be surprised if they take out a lot more females uh, just yeah. because of that you know, and, and lower the cow population for, for breeding purposes. But, you know, if that's what they got to do to preserve it, that's the right move. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I just like how they're allowing the public to participate in an act of conservation. You know, it it just helps you draw a deeper connection to to what these animals are and what they mean and their significance when you're out there and you're you're uh, you know rolling your sleeves up and getting to work. And some, of course, the the shooting, you know, with with the the part that's like hunting that I mean, pretty much is hunting in this case, even though they're not calling it that. That's going to be fun, of course, but there's a ton of hard work, as we talked about, too, that's involved. And I think anytime, anytime when you work really hard on something like that, you just get such a deeper appreciation for it. Plus, it helps you see that, hey, these biologists and these conservation officers and so forth that are studying these animals and who are, are you know, organizing these efforts – they're they're out there. They want what's best for the ecosystems in our country, especially on you know some of our public grounds. Not that these are public hunting grounds, but they are uh, they are federally owned you know national park service grounds. So it's something that that should mean something to all of us. So I think it's uh, I think it's a wonderful opportunity for for people to get in, for hunters to get involved in and and uh, you know hopefully some people uh, get get a good taste of some bison meat, get a couple of those nice bison skulls up on the wall and. Uh, incredible bison hide blanket can you imagine one of those things <laughs> yeah it'd be amazing <laughs> yeah that'd be awesome oh well i, I think i think the premise is though we have to save the morels from the buffalo so that's right that's right <laughs> there's our there's our segue yeah, i was gonna say you know it's so stinking dry down there in arizona i bet you they don't have any mushrooms <laughs> but up here in the midwest and uh honestly Alex is probably in like the promised land for morel hunting there in Michigan. Yeah. All that, all that, uh, temperate deciduous forest ecosystem that they have up there and, or, or biome really. And, and, uh, plenty of moisture, you know, starting to get the right ingredients there, but I am no expert. I have found just a handful of morels in my time. Um, to be honest with you, I haven't done a ton of looking for them, but I've done enough to where I know I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> well enough, but, uh, <laughs> that's why I have Garrett Fike. Oh, I just said your first name again. That's why I have Fike here on the show, because as good as Fike is with, uh, hunting big whitetails, uh, with archery equipment. And, um, he was actually on here talking to us about the rut which was probably one of our more educational episodes that we ever had. It was just a phenomenal episode. I remember listening to it, I think, two more times during the rut just to try and give myself some hope of filling a tag. But uh, uh, as good as Fike is with that, I think you're equally good with finding morels. So uh, you ready to talk some morels, Fike? Oh, yeah. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. Have you found any yet this year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, I haven't. I haven't specifically gone out in search of morels, uh, but I have found some while I've been turkey hunting here over the last couple weekends. And, you know, uh, this past this past weekend, I was a couple counties south of here. And so they were it was a prime weekend to be finding them down there. And it's perfect timing for, you know, the area that we live in right now around the Quad Cities um, here through the next week or 10 days is the time you're going to want to be out in search of them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I kind of have started to learn kind of those dates of when that is, um, you know, it was really dry around here, but it dumped rain pretty good yesterday. So I got to think that like, would you, would you say tomorrow is going to be like a prime day fight? Yeah. I think here, you know, 
tomorrow and, and through the weekend should be some some prime days to go out and find morels in our area. You're a little bit drier where you're at, even though you know you're not too far away. Mm-hmm. Um, but you guys were really dry up until that rain yesterday. So that that was you know came in in good time and uh it's gonna really help yeah yeah for sure it seems to me you know everybody gets kind of excited early on but it's always typically the last few days of april and the first 10 to 15 days of may uh for this part of the world so and that that holds pretty true from from year to year uh, almost without fail and there are exceptions Uh, but usually when i when i start i wait until I, I hear of some guys a couple counties south finding them or or here in my home county of Mercer. Mm-hmm. You know, if you get over next to the river where there's some sandier soils that warm up sooner, those guys are going to start finding morels a week or ten days before we'll find them. Oh, you know, wow. even just ten or fifteen miles east, where we're in some soils that take a little bit longer to warm up. The morels are just like anything else; they just need, you know, to hit that magic number. Um, of the soil temp to, to germinate. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I think I've seen that before on a TV show. They had this guy and, um, uh, he would travel all across. I think he would probably start somewhere like around, uh, maybe Southern new England. Um, well probably not there because it's going to get, it's going to take a while for that to warm up up there. It must, it was probably like, south carolina or north carolina maybe and he would kind of work his way um kind of northwest and he would he would just you know get on either permission ground or public ground and just start you know kind of following the what do they call it do they call it the they call it the uh, hatch when they're talking about that for for uh, morels is that kind of the slang term there when you can you know i'm not sure what they i'm not sure what they would what they would call it but uh we call it the hatch Sounds good. <laughs> I mean, not that not that mushrooms are laying eggs here, people. <laughs> they send out spores, but <laughs> but uh, but um, I, I think I've heard somebody say that before. Like that's kind of like a, a a mushroom or slang term or something. I don't know. I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyways, this guy would kind of follow across the <laughs> the country. You know, as as those soil temps were hitting it. What's it like up in uh, the promised land of? mushroom hunting right now alex are a bunch of people up your way finding them yet or is it still a little cool up there no i i think it's it's kind of prime you know to that point we just had rain yesterday i had it today and you know right now like i know i know a lot of guys are out and i was just thinking about it actually this weekend you know be kind of being the first weekend of may yeah people are, are really hardcore out here about it and you know i had i had my own private land for hunting that i was you know guiding on and hunting on i remember having people trespass all the time oh really and i i get the neighbor calling me and they're like hey are you uh you know you up here and i'm like no and i'll be like oh there's a blue truck you know parked over here and i'd have to call police and they'd go and pull somebody and call me and this happened every year and it'd be like oh yeah they're morel hunting and they they got onto your area and i'm like darn mushroom hunters you know (laughs) yeah Yeah, i would i would venture to say that there's more trespassing that goes on in the two you know two to three weeks of mushroom hunting than all other weeks of the year combined wow that's interesting it's it's because you're it's the entire general public you know that's looking for a place to go find mushrooms yeah right uh, so they're wandering around right and they don't necessarily understand 
the rules or don't they don't take the time to educate themselves on on the property lines and yeah. and uh you know you take somebody that comes out of a more urban area and they might think that everything is pretty much public you know they might not yeah. have the concept of the private land like you know we we do and we maybe we just take it for granted and they don't recognize right. that yeah and well and, and you know needless to say <laughs> yeah needless to in say michigan, in michigan right. it's it's pretty serious so uh oh, yeah kind of kind of uh ironic we're, we're chatting about it today as i was kind of thinking about it so yeah, that just burns me. And of course, you guys know that I I busted a couple trespassers this year. Well, one I didn't I didn't have a chance to really bust them. They were on ATVs while I was while I was uh, hunting the rut. But uh, another time, uh, <laughs> a guy just comes traipsing through right when I'm, you know, hunting the the best day of the year that I'd hunted so far. And uh, it's crazy. Uh, trespassing just just drives me nuts. But um, anyways, the worst part is that you know there's for every time that you catch them, you know that there's something like that going on, you know, oh, five yeah. times that you don't mm-hmm. know about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's yep. disheartening. Yep, for sure. Yeah. If you ever let a trail cam just kind of sit all year and put it into some high traffic areas, it's crazy what you see happening. On and and you can think your property's way out of way out in the middle of nowhere people will still end up on it. I mean, it's just absolutely. It's just the way it is. It's and, you know, probably should affect how we hunt too to some degree you know sometimes i think maybe we lay off stuff a little too much you know like where where i caught that trespasser i'd been babying that spot for months you know jake and i hadn't been back there it's probably since i don't know july june and here we are get there to november thinking no one's been back there and here comes a guy who already in that time and hung a trail camera up on our property and you know, who knows how many times since October one had walked back there and hunted, you know, <laughs> so it's, yeah, I think it's, it's always important to have a presence on your, on your farms you're hunting. Yep. Yep. For sure. The, uh, the, the, the cell phone cameras have been a big, big time, uh, winner yeah. and <clears throat> you know, I don't want to hijack it, but I, I, I put up, I think five or six. Wow. Uh, cell cameras up and I, and I put up signs basically like before you walked on the property in any corner, like you are on a cell phone camera and I, I only had one person, uh, trespass after that. And I, I called the state police and pulled them out like real quick. Wow. That's awesome. So, that's encouraging. No, that's that a- you're able to get help on that like that. That's Yeah. If you, if you have cell service, I mean, if you don't, sure, yeah. you're screwed either way, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's there, true. That's true. <laughs> yep. Yep. For sure. Well, we are getting into the prime of it. It sounds like it. So, um, l- let's kind of, let's kind of maybe start here. Maybe somebody's listening and, uh, you know, I brought up mushroom hunting the first time on the show. I think it was episode two of the podcast. And, um, Brandon and I, we were going through rating how our spring 2020 outdoor activities had gone shed hunting and, uh, maybe a little bit of early fishing and, um, turkey hunting. And then I brought up mushrooms and he was like, I think he got a little nervous, you know, because it was like only our first episode. He's like, uh, what are you talking about? <laughs> so, so somebody, somebody might be listening into this and they may have no idea what we're t- talking about with hunting mushrooms. So fight, can you kind of explain to us what a morel is? Yeah. So 
these are the, these are the mushrooms we're going out to find uh, to eat and enjoy with our meals, and uh, they are they're probably the most sought after uh, you know wild growing mushroom in the country, I would think. Yeah, and probably. they just come up in the spring, and uh, you know it's usually for this part of the world in the Midwest we're looking at late mid you know mid April to late April on through uh, the month of May, and so they're People go crazy over them. I know at farmers markets and things, they'll they'll sell for as much as twenty five or thirty dollars a pound, and 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 sometimes significantly more at different times of the year, and depending on how close you are to bigger areas. But yeah, they're uh, they're pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right. I'm glad you mentioned that. That in that show that I was watching, that was the context. This guy was driving across the country. He would he would stop at restaurants or farmers markets or whatever and he'd he'd strike a deal for, you know, however many pounds of mushrooms he had picked up that day and man, the cash that guy was pulling in. It was just just crazy what people would pay it's for incredible. these things. Yeah, and they're I mean, they're just laying out there literally ripe for the picking. And so yeah, absolutely. So uh that's why that's why people end up you know, going, going crazy for it. But, you know, we keep talking about this narrow window of time. And I think that's, that's probably what makes the morel mushroom kind of a thing of, I mean, would, maybe you guys wouldn't agree with this, but I feel like there's kind of like one of the things that makes morels popular is that they're here and gone so quickly. And so it almost adds like this level of mystery. And they're certainly not just like, really easy to find i mean you got to work to get them and you got to go into some nasty stuff and and uh but but people find them enough and only for such a narrow window of time that i think that that also kind of gets people really excited about it wouldn't you agree i would definitely agree and i think the fact that it's you know they're they're primarily just wild you know, they're grow they grow in the wild and, and they're very difficult to cultivate and, and, and farm raise. So, um, like you said, there's just an allure, uh, mystery about them and people grew up going out finding them or, or, you know, being in the kitchen with mom and dad rolling mm. cracker crumbs and, and frying them up. And it just, it brings back good memories, I think for people. And it's something you only get a time or two a year. Uh, so it's, I, th- I think there's, there's a lot to that that makes those morel mushrooms really special to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're they're, you know, I of course I don't have this just because. Although you know what, one time I remember my dad got some morels from somebody at work, gave them to him, and he was all excited about that. So even for me, <laughs> there's a little bit of nostalgia attached. But I'm sure for for people who've been hunting them their whole lives, it's you know it's almost like a, a seasonal holiday or something like that to when it gets to morel season. But it you know, is, and there's years that you just can't you you may not be able to count on finding them too. So you you really just never know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, and within this, this narrow window of time to find them, you know, it really highlights the fact that that fungi are kind of, you know, in a way delicate organisms, you know, they got to have just the right conditions in order for them to thrive. And, um, you know, that's kind of what we're talking about here. When this window opens up, these conditions are getting there. Now, Fike, do you remember off the top of your head? I think I heard this once, but I'm not sure. Isn't there like a magic number for like 
air temp to soil temp or something like that. Like you look for a, a forecast where you have like a weak solid of weather that doesn't dip below the fifties or something like that. Or is there? Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're, you're spot on it. You need some, you need consecutive nights in a row of, of lows in the 50, you know, 50 degrees or better. And, and you hope that you see some, some highs in the seventies or, or beyond. And, uh, moisture is a big, big part of that, but, I don't know for sure what the soil temp is. Uh, you know, I would guess it'd probably be in the low, low fifties is what would trigger them. But you know how it is in a timber on, on the north side of a, on the north facing slope of a ridge, it, it may be, you know, 45 degrees and the other, the south facing side could be 54. So you mm. just, you know, it's, it's tough to put a number on it, but it seems and I think we were talking about it earlier, maybe before we started recording, but the, the dates are pretty consistent. Uh, late April, you know, around here, you're looking at the same 10 to 14 days, pretty much year after year. It's going to fall somewhere in there. Sure. Now, now there seems to be kind of like a good little, like hidden tip there. Are you doing that? Are you like, you know, say it's late April, those earliest days of the, of the normal season, are you going over to those south facing sides of the timber and looking there first and then you know maybe by midweek you're starting to work your way towards the northern uh exposure of the of the timber yeah absolutely i mean if if time allows generally i i have the ability to get out and look for them you know maybe once or twice in a weekend so i'm trying to cover as much ground as i can with the time i have but if i do have some time midweek and i know it's a little on the early side I'm definitely going to focus on those areas where the ground is more exposed to the sunlight and going to be warming up a little bit faster. You yep. know, and you also hear of, you know, situations where people find them in burns or hmm. if there had been some excavating done that's opened the soil up. And, um, you know, there's some talk that maybe that exposes the spores, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they germinate, and you know, and that's what uh, you get the, the fruiting portion of, of this organism, which is the, the morale that we know. Uh, but I think a lot of it is just when you open up that soil, it, it just it absorbs more sunlight and warms up faster, whether it was through a burn or if it was just exposed with an excavator or, or you know, whatever piece of equipment. It just sure. warms up a little bit quicker. and So people find them in areas like that quite a bit. Hmm. Another good reason to do a CRP burn, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, you never know. it's, it's good for, it's good for the ground for sure, but, uh, might also be good for your morel mushroom count. Um, I just actually did that this last week and I uh, told, uh, it was on my grandfather's farm and I told him, I was like, Hey, you and grandma should like hop in the truck and just kind of cruise over this, you know, late next week and just see if there's anything to that. But I don't know if we'll get a chance to do that or not, but, uh, no, that's, that's a, uh, that's a good little tip there on the following the, where the sun is hitting and, uh, you know, kind of like shed hunting, really, you kind of piece together what makes sense. Where, where do the deer want to be though? Well, during the time that they're shedding antlers, they want to be where it's going to be warm. And, uh, during the time of year when, uh, mushrooms are going to have the right conditions to grow, well, it's got to be warm enough. So that's, yeah, it's a good little tip. I've actually, I've actually thought of that before, but for some reason I felt like, oh, you know what? Maybe they'll just cook if they're in the south facing side or something, but no, it makes sense now that I really think about it. But what, what other conditions though, is it, is, I guess, you know, one one of the things I put down on here 
is what is worse for for a good year of mushroom hunting is is a dry spring worse or is a cool spring worse i'm going to guess that a dry spring is worse i would definitely agree with that um you know even on a cool spring eventually it's going to warm up it's going to break and mm-hmm. uh, you're going to get those soil temperatures up in there and they're going to come but if it's dry if the moisture is not there you know, they may not and so to me i would i would definitely agree with you and and say that a dry spring is going to be much more you know impactful on on the mushroom the quality of mushroom hunting over the the temperatures okay so now when it's real dry like that would you advise somebody to maybe head to like uh maybe some bottom land like along a a creek or something or maybe have like a maybe just a wet spot somewhere where you might have like almost a a natural spring or something like that or does that not really seem to help even during those dry years it i mean it would if, if you have areas like that it would definitely be worth going and checking those out and when we talk dry, you got to remember in the timber with all the leaf litter and everything else that's in there, it does hold a lot of moisture mm, really well. So even if it seems dry out in your lawn or, or the, you know, the open ag fields, if you go into the timber and you, and you pull that layer of leaves back, there's probably still some moisture on the ground. So it, you know, it's probably not as dry as what, what you would think, but if we can get a shower, which typically this time of year, we do catch showers, you know, weekly we should be and uh so they normally come you know a couple days after that shower you'll be able to go out and and it should be good conditions just like we're going to experience here over the next few days Mm. yeah yeah that's a good point um you know we we should say it too most of the time i think i mean there's there can be some really small morels and i'm gonna guess that most of the time those really small ones just get they get missed but um you know, you do need to know what you're looking for when it comes to mushrooms. You know, when you when you find a shed, that shed can't really hurt you. But eating the wrong mushroom can put a real hurting on you. And so, uh, you know, it, it kind of goes without saying, but we're going to say it anyways. Uh, make sure you know what it is that if you're if you've never done this before, you know, do just a Google image search or something like that. Do do a couple internet searches to make sure you know what you're looking at. There is a lookalike out there. Um, and I think there's something to it. Uh, isn't it that, uh, the cap is not hollow on the false morels? Is that, is that what it is? Fike? Yeah. The way I understand it is that the, the stem goes all the way to the top of the cap of, of that mushroom. Um, okay. So yeah, there's, and there's like no overlap from the cap too. Isn't that another one? Correct. Okay. But I mean, yeah. they do look very similar, but, uh, they, they are, do look similar, but yeah, they're not, they're not edible and they can uh, hurt you. So make sure you know the difference, um, before you, uh, you go picking something out of the woods and pick it up to eat it. So, yeah. uh, and I will say I've, I've never found, uh, you know, one of those false morels or, or, uh, you know, any like that. There's some other kind of lookalikes that, that I'll find. Um, sure. I don't know what the, the actual names are for them. We have our standard, you know, like slang terms for them, but you know, I mean, like you said, Kent get online and, and look up some pictures of them and, and they're pretty easily identified. Uh, so 
But if you don't know, don't risk it. Talk to somebody that knows knows what they're talking about. You know, show it to them and and make sure that you got what you think you have before you just take it home and and start preparing it for a meal. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you guys have those up in uh, Michigan, Alex? Do you have any of those fall smurls up there? You know what? I I don't know. Uh, in my experience, I haven't, but you know, I've, I've gone out to be honest twice. I've gone up with some really, you know, I would say tenured, uh, mushroom hunters. I've never been shown them, but you know, might be, I just don't want to give you incorrect information, <laughs> I, but I haven't seen you them. Know, you don't want to, you don't want to have that blood I, on your hands. Huh? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to steer you the wrong way. Cause, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I know they exist, but I just I've never seen them. And I'm like you, Alex. No, I've been around a lot of a lot around a lot of mushrooms and and mushroom hunters, and and nobody's been able to show me one. But I know they are out there. And yeah. uh, so mushrooms are just one of those things you really got to be careful with and and know what you know what you have. Yep, for sure. Yeah, you don't you don't want to you don't want to just go around eating whatever you find. But there are some other species <laughs> species of of mushrooms out there. There's like uh, what do they call them pheasant backs, I think, or pheasant yeah. tail. And mm-hmm. uh, pheasant backs. Yeah, pheasant backs and um, hen of the woods, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and those are my favorite. Hen of the woods are your favorite. Yeah, those yep. those kind of those kind of have a little bit later season than morels, right? Those are a fall mushroom. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah. So way later. <laughs> yeah. So that's the uh, other. Yeah, the other equinox. Yep. Yep. That's right. No, that's that's uh that's really good information. Um, another thing that I've heard before, and I think I have observed this, but people will say that, oh, it's you know, it's early. It's time for the grays. And then, uh, you know, a couple weeks later, well, the grays are pretty much done. Time for the yellows. Is, is that true? Have you noticed that, that, uh, you know, you're definitely picking more gray, uh, morels during the early season and yellows in the late season? Yeah. And it's, and it's a fine line and I, and I haven't been able to figure it all out myself, honestly. And I'm sure there some of your listeners are going to have opinions on it, but to me, early season, you're going to find grays, you're going to be smaller, but those grays, if you get to them, you know, three or four days after they're in perfect condition, they are going to, they're going to be a little bit faded. And I think there's a lot of misidentification that happens and guys, you know, maybe here this weekend, they're going to say, well, I found, you know, a fair night, uh, a fair mess of yellows, but they're actually just kind of older, maybe a little bit more faded grays. There's a difference between like a true gray to me and, and a, and a yellow. Um, when you, when you find a yellow morel, I mean, there, there's really no mistake in them and, and they're two totally separate, you know, uh, types of morels. So sure, there is a difference there and, and there's some other morel species too, that are also edible and I'm not real familiar with them. I know some guys talk about finding black morels earlier on than even what huh. you find the grays, um, heard of that. but I'm That's not cool. real, yeah, I'm not real familiar with them. So I'm not going to speak to that, but it does seem like. You know, right now, uh, in our area, you should be finding grays. Either they're going to, I mean, truly look gray, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to have the gray color to them, or they might be kind of a tannish color or even almost a, a lighter yellowish color, but probably in my opinion, still is a gray. That's just a little bit faded. It's, 
you know, maybe a few days past its prime. Sure. Um, you know, and now as we look into another 10, you know, eight to seven to 10 days from now, you'll start to find, uh, the, the true yellows and, and, uh, they're, they're a whole, they're a whole different deal. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really, uh, interesting to, to actually hear that delineation because I've, I've seen the pictures and, and when, uh, Jake and I had some success together once, I think we did find a few of, you know, both, both, I assume there's, yep. they're different species or subspecies or something like that. But, um, yeah, it's good to know that, that there is a, a, a real difference there, but no. So you got to hit the right window. Got to know what you're picking. Uh, keep an eye out for both grays and yellows. I think, it, I think that's probably where that's going to be most helpful is just don't, don't be so focused on looking for one type of morel because you may end right. up, you may end up coming across both, but, um, now, you know, what's your perfect day? to be out like, like you were, you know, like you might even consider taking off work to get out and look for morels. If you had, you know, th- the perfect day conditions, what would that be? So, you know, this past weekend it was really warm. We had, we had highs around 80 degrees and we just caught a shot of rain on Monday afternoon. Uh, for me here is about a half an inch to six tenths. And, but now we're cool. So I'm not going to say that right now is going to be my favorite time to be going out, Mm. but if we could have got that shot of rain and even a little bit more, if we could have been closer to that inch benchmark and kept the, the warmer temps, 70 plus degree days, uh, for highs and, and well above 50, um, for the lows, I'd be like right now, you know, here in a couple days. Um, I've had a lot of success, you know, in that, you know, from May 5th to May 10th time frame, And it's, and it's good on either side of that as well, but it would be somewhere in there and it would be just a couple days after a, a good considerable rain event. And we would have consistently warm temperatures to help, uh, get those things up out of the ground. And I think that would, you know, that, that would help generate a really big flush of mushrooms and that'd be ideal conditions. Man, that, that just like gets me excited to think about that. I'm hoping, uh, <laughs> I'm hoping while I'm doing a little turkey hunting, I can get out and poke around for some mushrooms and, uh, maybe even, maybe even hit like the, uh, you know, the, uh, hat trick find. So shoot a turkey, find some morels and find a shed. Have you ever done that fike <laughs> in one day? I, I did it on Sunday. Oh, oh, my. oh man i don't mean <laughs> a royal flush yeah well disclaimer that's the first and only time that that has happened i found mushrooms and i've killed turkeys in the same day but sunday was the first time i actually was able to find mushrooms find a shed and kill a turkey man. so you gotta send me a picture of the shed was it a good one nope it's a dink. <laughs> a little, little dinker. A little, hey, little, just a little one. You didn't qualify it. Yeah, that's right. It still counts. <laughs> that's, that's right. Still, that's still, we're going to call it's, that a royal flush. It's still a royal flush. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we need to make shirts, Alex. We need to make, we need to make some first-gen hunter, east-to-west hunts, royal flush shirts. That is, <laughs> that is just, man, some guys have it. all the luck. That That's is, that is out. cool. That is cool. It was, it was, it was lucky. And, uh, I mean the shed, 
the other the other neat thing about it, like I said, that turkey I shot him a little after eleven o'clock, and the mushrooms and the shed and the turkey were probably all within half an hour of each other. Oh, wow! You know, it was all, all ten thirty to quarter <laughs> after eleven or whatever it was. <laughs> found found the turkey or found the shed within minutes of of getting that turkey. So wow. it was kind of pretty wild deal. Yeah, that is cool. That's really good. What's your shed count for this year? Ah, boy, I don't know. I uh, probably ended up somewhere around 10 for myself. And then dad dad found uh, probably close to that many. So wow, it, it wasn't as, yeah, I was I was really happy. It had some good quality. Um, found two really nice, really nice sheds that are probably low to mid-70s uh, as Ooh, far as nice. a single side yeah, so you're right. at around 160 inch deer so those those are nice those are nice sheds to find and gives me a lot to look forward to going into this season yeah yeah for sure but, man that's a that's still got the uh, old royal flush there that is that is that is enviable man you that's know a, when you talk about that but i've i've had such i've done that a lot uh you know in these later seasons like we talked about we like hunting at a lot of times you're not going to, you're not going to get into a turkey right off the bat. And this, you know, Kent, maybe this weekend, you're going to be close to some birds right off the roost and everything's going to be really exciting. You're going to think things could potentially work out, but most of the time those birds, they hit the ground and, and they go to with their live hens and mm-hmm. they spend a couple hours with them. So if you're unable to pull them over to your setup right off the roost, it's a perfect time. To, to spend a couple hours looking for mushrooms because in my experience those those toms the the males are typically preoccupied with the hens for at least a couple hours uh, okay. before they start to break off of there and are easier to call in i we we kill more turkeys between you know eight o'clock and 11 i'll say than we probably do from six to eight okay. and so we really like that mid-morning time frame after they break off from the hens. So if you don't get one right off the roost, it's a good time to go try your hand at, at getting one of those royal flushes. Look for <laughs> mushrooms. You never know. You might just stumble upon a shed. And that's what, oh, that's what I did on Sunday. It was just, it was dumb luck. My my partner, my buddy that I was hunting with, he he almost stepped on the shed. And <laughs> that, had to, that had to sting for him, man. <laughs> Well, I told him, I said, Hey, you just gonna leave that there or you wanna take it? <laughs> so just to rub it in. But, yeah, but I had it in my in in the back pouch of my turkey vest when I pulled the trigger on that bird, so it was kinda yeah, that's cool. cool. That's really cool. And I cool. had morels in the front pocket of my my vest. Man, that is that is awesome right there. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping for something like that. But you know, before we go into this next thing, we need I I need to qualify fike here you know i can say that he's a great mushroom hunter and all that but we're about to get into one of the you know everything about morels is kind of controversial because i think alex you alluded to this earlier if there's an outdoor activity that (laughs) that the general populace will wander off the regular hiking trail for it is morel mushroom hunting so there's a lot of strong opinions out there on the matter but Mm -hmm. but uh Fike, what is your best day of mushroom hunting? How many, what's, what's your best haul? So it was a little bit later in the year. It was probably around May 15th or May 16th. And I had spent, I don't know, several hours walking around and and I'd probably come up with a pound or pound and a half. It was a good mess. 
And I was, as I was kind of exiting the farm, heading back toward the truck, I came into a mess of them. And by the time it was all said and done, I had, I had picked, it was right around 18 pounds of, of Morelson. <laughs> and there was, there was, you know, like I said, it was late. So that I bet there was easily probably another five to 10 pounds that I had to leave behind that were just too far gone. They oh were already starting goodness. to decay. So wow. if I could have got there, you know, say around the May 12th, 13th, you know, three, four, five days before, uh, it really would have been something And it. And it was anyhow, I, 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 uh, that was the first time I ever experienced a haul like that. I did, did again, um, a couple years ago, dad and I had, had some tremendous luck similar to that. Not quite as good, but, uh, you know, probably in that 10, 12 pound range. So, man, that is when you hit it right, it, it can really be, you know, you can, you can really find a lot in a hurry if you get in the right spot. And, and if it's a little bit later in the year like that, and they have more size to them, you know, if you find a, a hundred grays that are the size of your thumb, it doesn't really add up to a whole lot. But if you find a hundred of the bigger grays or the, or, or the yellows, you know, then, then you really have something there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's man. I can't imagine finding that many. It was tremendous. I mean, it's, you know, usually we always say like a true full grocery sack. If you use a grocery sack is going to be around five or six pounds. And, uh, you know, so you can imagine. Now, is, that, is, that, is that a plastic sack or a, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a, and, and we use them and there's different opinions on it. Some people say, you know, you need to use a, a mesh sack or like an orange sack that would have, you know, holes in it or pores in it that would allow the spores to, to fall out as you're going across, you know, sure. through the temper. But, um, I don't know. I think a lot of those spores are have probably already been released by yeah. the time you catch them or catch them by the time you pick them. But I could be wrong. I know that I've, I've brought them home and put them in gallon Ziploc bags before. And like the next day or, or a few hours later, you can see a little bit of a film on the inside of that Ziploc baggie that, and that's the spores, you know, yeah. that are still in there. So I think they probably release the most, I guess when they're drying down, but I really don't know for sure how much, how many of the spores you're spreading around if you're using a mesh sack or not. But I, a lot of times use, I've got a, like a cloth, uh, turkey decoy, uh, bag. And that's oh, what I okay. use because it's idea. really durable because, yeah. you know, I mean, when you're out here, when you're hunting morels, a lot of times you're in the briars and thick stuff and <laughs> you need a bag that is going to be able to hold up in those kind of conditions. And if you snag it on a briar, it's not going to rip out and cause you a bunch of grief. Yeah. Yeah. That makes good. sense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's a good point. Okay. So now that we've qualified that Fike is a, uh, a, a good morale hunter for sure. He knows what he's talking about, knows where to look. Where do you look, Fike? What's your, what's your go-to thing to look at, to look for? Caribou, elk, moose, antelope, coos deer, trophy whitetails, oryx, sika deer, doll sheep, and mule deer. 
What do all these critters have in common besides their delicious back straps? They can't all be hunted in the same state, meaning that at least one of these game species will require you to purchase a non-resident hunting license and tag in order to hunt them. Now the rules of the tag application game are wildly diverse from state to state. And if you are looking to complete a bucket list hunt, you are going to want some help to make sure you are setting yourself up for the best opportunity possible. And that's where tag application and hunt planning agent Alex Gruen of East to West Hunts can really help you out. If you've listened to any of the episodes we've had here on the First Gen Hunter podcast with our buddy Alex, then you know there isn't anyone who cares more about the details of tag acquisition than him. Alex not only will help you through the hoops of the tag application process, but he will also help you plan the details of your trip that will get you where you need to be in order to have your best chance at filling your tag. And he is offering a 10% discount for First Gen Hunter podcast listeners such as yourself. All you have to do is purchase a service through his website, alexgruen.com. That's A-L-E-X-G-R-U-I-N.com and use the code FIRSTGEN10 at checkout. F-I-R-S-T-G-E-N, the number 10, and you will receive 10% off the hunt of your lifetime. Well, I'm going to give you the same answer that I think 90% of, you know, mushroom hunters are going to give you. And, and it's the dead elm, at least in, in my part of the world, if I can find a recently, uh, dead elm, I am pretty confident that I'm going to find, uh, you know, some mushrooms under it and some trees, you might find the perfect dead elm that looks like it's in perfect condition. And there's no mushrooms under it. Um, and then you might find another one that has three or four pounds under one tree. Mm-hmm. So there's there's areas on these farms. A lot of them we've been fortunate to, to have access to for, for decades. And dad's been mushroom hunting them since he was my age. So we're talking, you know, 30, 40 years of, of experience on these pieces. And there's there's areas or draws where dad says, you know, he's never found them there before. So with the morel mushrooms, we think of morels as the fruiting body of the larger organism, but I suppose there's, you know, the mycelia or, or whatever the spider like you know, spider web like substance that's under the soil mm-hmm. that they, you know, that they grow from. It's just not in every area of every farm. So it's kind of got to be the magic combination. You got to have what we were talking about earlier, the heat and the moisture and, and, you know, the right timing. But then there also has to be a trigger there too for them to, to to shoot out that fruiting body, the morel that we're looking for. And there's just something about a dead elm, a recently dead elm, that it, it just works for them. I don't know if it's something in the roots. I don't know. I don't know what it does. I don't know the science behind it. But I do know if you can find a morel that's that's died in recent, you know, within the last year. I, I want to find one where most of the bark is still hanging on it. Okay. If, if okay. you're looking, if you find an elm tree and it's bare, all elm trees, when they start, when they die after, you know, a year or that second year, their bark will all be laying on the, on the ground. 
that just shed their bark off and it'll just be a clean, smooth trunk. Sure. Those aren't the ones that you're going to be finding your mushrooms under. You need to find them like the year before where there's still almost all the bark still hanging on them. And there might be a little bit missing here and there. You can tell that they're not butted out, but you kind of got to look close to identify that it's dead. If, if, if that's the case, that's the kind of tree you're looking for. Okay. I mean, so, I mean, there, there's some of my best finds have been trees that I identified as a dead elm when I was really close to them because it wasn't like I could see it from 80 or hundred yards away. Well, there's a, you know, big white, you know, trunk or, or big limb or whatever, where, where all the bark's off. That's a dead elm. It was, you know, figuring it out when I was closer True. and elms are really easy to identify. They got mostly all real, very vertical, um, limbs and structure to them. They don't have any horizontal branches or anything. You know, guys can, guys and gals can take a look online and, and get some tips and tricks on how to identify those elm trees. But that's what I do because if I look at a chunk of timber, say it's 40 acres Mm -hmm. and, and you want to walk into that 40 acres and pick it apart to look for mushrooms, you're going to be there. You better plan on taking the week off work (laughs) because if you're going to grid search that thing without any way to narrow it down without any sort of focal points, you're really going to have a hard time and it's going to become pretty discouraging pretty quickly. So it helps me to focus on finding the right trees and then looking for mushrooms around those trees. I mean, dad's always taught me we hunt trees and we pick mushrooms because if you can hunt and find the right tree, you're going to, you know, you're going to have mushrooms to pick underneath of it. And, and it really can be that simple. But that's not to say that morels won't grow under other trees or in other situations as well. When I found those, that 18 pounds, that wasn't situated around a specific tree. There was actually a creek that ran through in a very, I mean, it doesn't have water in it, you know, every month out of the year type of a creek. It's just a little ditch that runs through this draw. Well, we'd had a, a good rain like the week prior and it had flooded out and water must have come been flooded out 15 or 20 feet on either side of this creek. And it was wild as I was finding these mushrooms, you know, I could not, there was no mushrooms to be found outside of where that creek had flooded out of its banks, hmm. but where that water had flooded out to and within closer to its banks, I mean, it was just littered with mushrooms for probably 80 or hundred yards stretched through there. So that situation, wow. it wasn't specific to us, to a certain tree. It was just, and I can't explain it. I don't know what triggered it. Like I said, I just kind of lucked upon it. So if you're out looking for them, always be paying attention to where you're walking, be looking around. You never know. You could potentially walk into a situation like that and, and find the mother load that's not tied to a specific focal point. But if you're playing your averages, right. you, you should have something. And it's just like just like anything else in life. Like you should if you're just going out there, you know, it's like deer hunting. If you're just going out there to take a walk through the woods, your chances of success is pretty slim. Yeah. But if you go out there thinking about where the food source is, where the bedding is, where these transition areas are, okay, I need to be here. The wind's blowing from here. 
your chances of success, success are going to increase dramatically. So mm. just like that with mushroom hunt, you want to kind of have a game plan or, you know, you want to have some sort of an angle for success. And for me, it's finding those dead elms. But mm. like I said, they, they grow plenty of other places too. A lot of people have really strong opinions on this. I've heard apple trees. I've heard hedge trees. I've heard tulip trees. Um, I've heard people say oak trees. I've heard people say ash trees. Oh, I okay, think, yeah. But to me, an ash tree, if you see a dead ash tree in the timber from a distance, and you see a dead elm tree from a dis- from that same distance, it's going to be hard to identify which is which. They both look fairly similar. Yeah. So, never know. I don't know how much of this is misidentification of, of trees. You know, are, are, are people saying that they're finding them under ash trees, but they're actually dead elm trees? And I, I don't, I don't <laughs> I've know. never thought of it that way because <laughs> you do hear people swear by that. I remember. I know it. I remember one time I, I said to somebody who was a hardcore morel hunter, I was like, yeah, you got to look for, all I know is you got to look for uh, dead elms. And they're like, and apple trees, you know, like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 apple trees, man. And, and that's where the controversy comes. But, you know, I would think it'd be pretty tough to confuse an apple tree with an elm tree. But, but, uh, I've, I've also heard the ash tree thing and I've looked around ash trees. I've seen plenty of dead ash trees. I cut down this time of the year, you know, so we're talking, well, it would have been before morale time, but I cut down a giant ash tree that had just given up the ghost the year before, um, to emerald ash borer. And, there wasn't a sign of a mushroom, you know, ever around that tree. I'd looked for a few years and, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I never thought of it that, you know, I always thought, well, I guess it just isn't around my ash trees, <laughs> but well, and I, and maybe, like I said, I'm not, I'm not going to say that it doesn't happen. I just, in my experience, I've been fooled by many ash trees. I got a farm down in, in Warren County. And it got hit really hard with emerald ash borer here a couple of years ago. And I, I can't tell you how many trees have fooled me down there. And I, I walk way out of my way to go check this tree and I you know, get 20, 30 yards away from it. Well, it's another ash tree, but I go ahead and look anyhow. Yep. And yeah. I've never, I've never found a mushroom under one. That's not to say that it can't happen. Well, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take that as playing my odds there because, uh, if, if Fike hasn't found mushrooms under an ash tree with as much time as you spend looking for them, um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat you to that first. I don't think so. <laughs> I think I'll, I'll think I'll, uh, stick with the, the dead elm. You know, one thing I wanted to add on to this before I ever found my first, uh, morels, I, I had been finding a little frustration with trying to find morels and honestly all of my morale hunting to that point had been on public land not that you can't find them on public land but as alex and fike were saying earlier you know with people there's so much competition so much craze for this that people are willing to trespass to go find these things you can only imagine how hard public ground gets hammered you know from Mm -hmm. and especially you know it's kind of like shed hunting you know if you got I think the guys who find a lot of public ground sheds are the guys who are working uh, 
like either nights or yeah, second shift. Yeah. Yep. And they're able to get out there while everybody else is at work and they're scooping them up, you know, and, um, I, I imagine the same thing happens for morels. So, you know, that might've been part of my problem. You know, I could have been looking in some okay places, but I finally called Fike and I was like, all right, how do you identify these elm trees? Cause it's so hard to identify them this time of year with no leaves on them. Although right now we, we're hitting a green up really fast uh, this year. So you might be able to pick out some, pick out, you know, a little uh, cluster of elm trees uh, based on leaves, but, but, um, Fike told me, look for this silhouette that, you know, you have this tree that's growing with a long straight trunk, which again, ash trees will do the same thing, but then it kind of like the branches kind of canopy out almost like a, uh, uh, kind of like a locust tree, I guess, but locusts are more like twisty and gnarled their branches. Um, uh, an elm tree will be more of like, you know, your kind of your textbook looking tree really. And, and, uh, whereas an oak tree, you know, that'll be all, a lot of times all twisty and, and, you know, branches going everywhere, uh, you know, not straight as narrow trunks, but, but elms kind of, they just have those long trunks that go pretty well straight up for, I don't know, what would you say if like maybe 15, 20, 25 feet before they start really branching off into other, other, yeah, yeah you know, forking off into other big branches. And so, you know, look for something like that. And I think, um, elms, don't they kind of have kind of like almost a, I know hackberry, which I learned when I was, uh, with that Iowa forester this summer, hackberry and elms, they like to grow together. Um, but, uh, elms have kind of almost a soft bark when you kind of push your thumb on it. Is, is that true? Fike? you know, that's, yeah, I would say that's true. And they kind of have overlap. I mean, it looks like overlapping and intersecting grain of the bark, I would say. Okay. Um, and it's not a real, it's not a real thick bark to me. It's not like a hackberry or, or like your, um, some of your, you like your white oak trees or anything to, I mean, it's kind of a, it's a smoother, smoother tree sure. than that. Sure. No, that's, those are some good tips. You know, if you're just getting started out with this, or if you're like Brandon out there in Delaware, like you go looking for what, <laughs> uh, if, you, <laughs> if you get the chance to maybe give this a try, you know, those are some tips that can hopefully get you on the right track pretty quick. Uh, don't knowing those little subtleties like that, but no, those are, those are excellent tips. Fike. All right. So you got a bag full, you got a Turkey decoy bag full of, uh, morels time to bring them home what is the key for preparing these things? Like how do people either ruin their morels or how do they hit a home run with them? What's, what's the key to making good, fixing good morels? I think one easy way to ruin them is if you don't, when you, when you get them home, you need to get them in either. I like to store them. Some people will store them in water. They'll, they'll, They'll put, they'll take like a big mixing bowl, put some water in there, put all their morels in there. I don't like to do that. I think that's just going to make them soggier. It's going to speed up the, the breakdown process of them. I like to put them in a grocery sack or a Ziploc baggie, seal them up, put them in the fridge until you're ready to prepare them. Okay. Because that's going to help lock in the moisture. The worst thing you can do is come home, leave them outside or leave them on the tailgate or whatever, 
and let them lose a bunch of moisture mm. and dry out. Because then, you know, when you do bring them in and you start to sort through them and and, and uh, kind of assess what you have and, and, and put them in a different package or get ready to prepare them, they're going to be crumbling and falling apart. And because they're so dry, they've lost all their moisture. So be conscientious of that. Don't let them get dried out on you. So I, if I'm going to bring them home and I'm planning on preparing them, say, that evening, I, mm-hmm. I like to have them. And I fill up the sink with water, and I'll, I'll usually put a little bit of salt in there, right or wrong. I don't know. It's just what I've been taught <laughs> to help drive the bugs out. Because yeah, there I've, are, I've heard that, too. I've read that. Yeah, with them being hollow. I mean, you'll find ants. You'll find those oh, little yeah. sow bugs, the, the little roly-polies mm-hmm. that, uh, you, you know, you'll find a lot of them. They When they grow up, a lot of times there could be sticks or stems or little bits of like, you know, pieces of bark that's on the ground or grass, whatever that might be in them. You want to wash all that out. Like I said, I have them if they're, if they're pretty small. And when I say pretty small, I'm going to say if a a mushroom's like in that, you know, three inches height. And the other thing I should say too, when I, when I harvest mushrooms in the water, you know, out in the timber, I just pinch them off. I don't bring that dirt home. I don't need that to bring the dirt home. I don't pull them out of the ground. Hmm. I just pinch them off as close to the ground as I can. If you don't want people to know where you found your mushrooms, you can pull them out and pinch the stem off and throw it. Do it however you want. But just for me personally, I don't need to bring home a bunch of dirt sure. uh, with my mushrooms. So I'll have them. Or if they're larger, I might third them or quarter them. And... Once you get them cleaned up, I'll put them on a paper towel or, or a dish towel and just let them dry out for a little bit. And what I like to do is just the classic standard way of preparing morel mushrooms. You you run them through an egg wash, and I've had them with either Ritz crackers that are ground up, or my favorite is just regular old saltine crackers. Just use a rolling pin and break them down and turn it into a batter. Do the egg wash and then that saltine cracker, breadcrumbs, and fry them in butter. And that's oh, that's man. my favorite way to do it. That's the way I grew up on. And I've had some different variations uh, of it done that same way. People like to play around with batters. Like I said, you could use the Ritz crackers or I've had some with, uh, I don't know if it was like Fry Magic or there was another kind of batter that was similar to like a shake and bake style. Um, and that, and that was pretty good. It, it was all good. But to me, the old standard saltine crackers, fried in butter, and a skillet, you can't beat it. And they're great either just by themselves. I like to make sandwiches out of them. I'll just take a piece of bread with some butter on there, put those on, uh, just a layer of the morel mushrooms, and eat them like that. And I, they're fantastic that way. Oh, that sounds really good. Oh, and they're, they're watering. Good. Yeah. <laughs> No, they, they're awesome. They're very rich. Uh, you know, you can, they, as good as they are, don't, you know, don't let yourself get too carried away and eat, eat a whole plate full of them because you might get a bellyache from it. Cause they're, they are really rich when you fry them in that much yeah. butter like that. Yeah, they but are rich. They're, they're great. I mean, they have fantastic flavor just by themselves. I've, I've chopped them up and, and put them in omelets and, and little stir fries and, and things like that. And a lot of other people have done some you know, different things with them, um, that I haven't experimented with just because to me, 
like we talked about earlier, the, the morels, it's, it's more than just the mushroom. It's, it's kind of the whole experience. It's, it's preparing them the way I had, I've had since, you know, I was a toddler. Um, you only get to do it once or twice a year. It's just tradition. So I don't deviate a whole lot from the norm of what I know, but I've heard of people making like morel poppers out of them where they put cream cheese in the center of them and you know oh, do different man. things I and mean, there's there's all sorts of <laughs> the sky's the limit they're they're a, they're fantastic to to cook with and and they're just great table fare so yeah, definitely there's there's plenty of different recipes you can look up online but i like to fry them just good old classic fried morel mushrooms hmm, that's you can't go uh, wrong with frying anything that's for sure that is (laughs) that is for sure oh man you know i think one time my wife caitlin uh she might have sauteed some morels that i had and uh like fike was saying you know just eating them plain like that you know i think we probably threw some seasoning in there we probably sauteed them in butter or something like that but even just like that they were they were fantastic so um yeah, there's there's uh, definitely some some different ways to enjoy them. Of course, if you can pair them with you know a good turkey leg, maybe uh, maybe even eat your mushrooms off of the shed that you found while you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. While, while no, you're, there's, you're there's, out there. Uh, there's a lot of ways to enjoy them. I will say too, <laughs> some of the guys that that are into finding lots of them or like to purchase a lot of them, they'll try to preserve them in a way that they can enjoy them throughout the entire year. And that might be something your listeners are interested in trying as well. And so I've never personally done it. Uh, but from what I understand, the best way to do that, you can't just say, throw them in a, um, you know, one of those, a freezer bag or a vacuum sealed bag and expect them to last and be mm-hmm. able to pull them out and, and pre- prepare them and, and, and be the same as what they would fresh. They're just not going to be, um, so what, what I've heard is the best way to do it is just still run them through your egg wash, batter them, fry them until they're like almost done and then set them out on a tray, let them cool off and then freeze them in a vacuum sealed bag hmm. like that. And then you can pull them out, refry them, finish them out. And then people say they're just as good so that, you know, that's a way you can kind of extend that experience and enjoy them all year long if you're willing to put in some work up front when you initially find them uh, you might be able to enjoy them in the middle of summer or fall or whatever so hmm, that's a, yeah that's a really good tip actually sounds pretty similar to a uh well, I don't know if he fries them. I thought of actually doing this for the tip of the day. I was going to get a hold of him. I got a good buddy, Alex Earhart, who's uh, been on the show episode 32. He's uh, he's a, a guy who just loves the outdoors, does a lot of camping and stuff. But he, he every year finds a bunch of morels. And uh, he was telling me something once that was kind of that same idea of laying them out on a tray or something to freeze them. And, and uh, he swears by it. So, yeah, it sounds similar yeah. to that. Uh, but I have, I have also heard too, like Fike mentioned, you can't just dump them in a bag and, and throw them in the freezer. They it, it won't work. Won't, they won't be, they, they, I think they basically just, not that they rot in the freezer, but they just become unpalatable, you know, just. Yeah. I think once you thaw them out and you try to get them out of the bag, they're just like mush. 
right you know right they lost all their structures so they they just don't work but yeah it's it's just one of the i've i i'd like to to have some in the you know in the summertime or fall but usually i get my fill of them uh, in the springtime yeah yeah well and that's part of the mystery of the morel right you can't you can you can only have it while while you got it and uh you only get to find them for a short a short window of time so yeah they're cool you can't really grow them as you said there's there's uh not really been any uh widely touted way of farming morels i think some people have had some success i know there's supposed to be some guy in iowa who who uh thinks he's kind of cracked the code on it to some degree but but uh no morels are kind of the mysterious thing but man are they fun to find and man are they fun fun to eat and enjoy kind of like fike was just saying you know you reminded me there um they're they're very fun to find even if there's people out there that don't necessarily enjoy eating them there's they're always fun to find there's a lot of people out there that i mean it's a fantastic way to introduce someone to Mm. the outdoors Uh, maybe they've never gone hunting or they don't go fishing or or maybe they don't want to but they probably are going to enjoy spending some time outdoors hiking around and finding mushrooms and kids especially it's just I remember being really little and it was an Easter Sunday event and, and dad has spotted a couple big dead elm trees out in this open pasture. And, uh, and maybe it was mother's day. I don't remember what the event was, I guess, but he went out and checked those trees and there was just loaded with morels around them. And he came back and he gathered all of us kids up uh, myself and, and my cousins. And, and we went out there and, and just, had a blast you know all together picking those mushrooms so i guess always remember to to try to get some kids involved or or maybe some other people in your lives that you think would enjoy that that don't necessarily go out and experience the outdoors as as often as as we all do so it's a, it's a good good way to introduce someone to the outdoors yeah definitely you know there's i call it wandering off the trail which is i think what what makes hunting so much fun right you know fishing can be a lot of fun and my favorite type of fishing trout fishing (laughs) you know because you're wandering off the trail you're going out and you're you're walking along these streams in these streams and uh you know trying to get to these wild fish and you know people go hiking and state parks stuff that's great and i would never want people to stop losing that connection that you know, kind of the average person has to the outdoors, but, but when you get off and you get into it, you, you get into the, you get into the middle of the forest and you're crawling around on your hands and knees at times trying to find these things or, you know, same thing for shed hunting or whatever. You're going into these habitats where these animals are spending a lot of their time, seeing what they eat, seeing where they sleep, you know, it's, it, it it really develops a deeper connection, deeper passion for, for being there and experiencing it. So I, yeah, I totally agree. Morels are a gateway activity to spending more time in the woods and appreciating it more for sure. That's a good point. Well, guys, um, how can, uh, people follow you, Fike on, uh, Instagram? What's your uh, handle on there? I believe the Instagram is gfike77 so g f e i k 77 
Good deal. Yeah, follow him. You'll you'll get to see a lot of his uh, cool stuff that he's been up to. Not a doesn't post all the time, but but on occasion when he does, it's always good. So, you know, I think the Royal Flush post that needs to make it. That's the uh, yeah. Did you yeah get, that w- that would did, be a good one. Did you get a picture with all the stuff, the bird, the shed, and the morels? You know, I I didn't. I oh. didn't. I got I I got some I got some pictures from. One of my favorite turkey pictures of all time was from a couple years ago, and it's a, it's that turkey bag, that turkey decoy bag I was telling you guys about, mm-hmm. full of mushrooms and 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 a bird that I I'd, I'd shot. And I That's got some awesome. other pictures of a of a bird and sheds from when I was out in South Dakota. No mushrooms on that trip though. So there, I got I got pictures of uh, bird and shed, and I got pictures of bird and mushroom, but I don't have <laughs> pictures from this last weekend of. <laughs> Mushroom <laughs> Man, I was going to superimpose that onto a t-shirt or something. <laughs> we can Photoshop one back in. It was just a little shed. <laughs> yeah, but you could stage it now with one of your big sheds that you found this year. There you go. There but you go. Give Garrett, or uh, as we like to call him, Fike or Gary, a follow on Instagram. And uh, also our uh, co-host tonight, Mr. Alex Gruen from East to West Hunts. Be sure you follow both Alex Gruen, which I think is just at Alex.Gruen, right, Alex, for uh, Instagram? No, uh, my Instagram's at, uh, well, I have two different profiles. Oh, I better follow my personal. <laughs> it's uh, AlexG.Hunt. If That's you right. follow my business page, it's East to West Hunts. And yeah. uh, the website is AlexGruen.com. That's right. Yeah. that You know what? That's what I think I was probably, I'm used to saying it in the ad. <laughs> I'm going to have to edit this to sound like I actually know who you are, but <laughs> no, follow, follow Alex and uh, East to West. It is so worth it. There's, there's stuff on there daily and also get on Facebook too. interact on Facebook. Um, I know that Facebook has changed through time. You know, uh, I had a friend once refer to it as uh, I think he called it mom book once just because mm. it's like uh the place where you can go to find your mom's social media life but <laughs> so i know facebook has changed some but there's still some great stuff that gets shared on there and uh uh you know you can uh, also find alex on go wild and uh be sure to interact mm-hmm. there he posts some of his good his good uh, outdoor exploits and adventures on there as do I. And uh, please make sure you don't forget about Brandon and uh, good old hunt fish life at thehuntfishlife.com. You'll find all their links there on their website and some cool projects coming up here soon. We got a big one in the works between first gen hunter east to west hunts and hunt fish life and Kilmo ducks. We were, uh, Alex and I were just talking about that last night. So some cool stuff coming up there, but, uh, make sure you also head over to firstgenhunter.com and of course, Instagram, Facebook, go wild, look up first gen hunter. You'll find me and, uh, make, and you can even find those links on my website and, uh, the school year is coming to an end, which means I have more time on my hands, which means you can finally start to see some of my, uh, whitetail content going up on YouTube here pretty soon as I get that time. And, uh, you know, some other cool stuff coming down the road here. So thanks so much, Garrett, for coming on the show. Man, that feels weird calling you that. Thank you, Fike, for, for coming on the show. There you go. That's, and that sounds better. So much more natural. Of course, yeah, Garrett, you know, saying Gary in some kind of like ridiculous uh, 
you know, redneck uh, accent or something is usually hard for you. But, but. Oh, yeah. No, uh, thanks, thanks for Gary. Me on. I enjoyed it. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, you bet, you old boy. <laughs> and uh, thanks, Alex, so much for coming on and co hosting tonight. You got it, man. And everyone else, thanks for tuning in. Take care and take someone hunting. <laughs>